Hello, everyone, and welcome to the trustee table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Anne Skeet. Anne is Senior Director for Leadership Ethics, guiding programs in leadership, business, and social sector ethics at the Margulis Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. She researches, writes, and speaks about the ethical dilemmas of leaders, corporate culture, and the ethical challenges of governance. In addition, Anne works with board directors, CEOs, and C-suite executives to shape and reinforce organizational cultures that encourage ethical outcomes. She writes about issues facing leaders in across sectors for her blog, Venison, the practice of ethical leadership, and for other media outlets, such as Market Watch, San Francisco Chronicle, the San Jose Mercury News, Recode, and CEO Magazine. Anna is a magna cum laude graduate of Bucknell University and holds a Master of Business Administration degree from Harvard Business School. Anne, thank you for taking a seat at the table today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to jump in today with a big topic, which is ethics on the board, um, which seems very timely given everything that's happening in the world today. So how would you define ethics when you're working with trustees? Well, first of all, I think it's good to have an understanding of sort of a definition of ethics. It's not about people's feelings or emotions or even about making sure the board bylaws are followed to a T. My favorite definition of ethics is that it's all about human flourishing. So in this context, we ask, what can a trustee do to make sure a school is the ideal environment for people to flourish, not just students, but teachers, administrators, and families? In my opinion, the most important thing for trustees to keep in mind is the obligation they have to play their position. What I mean by that is um, being relentlessly disciplined in their role. Trustees are charged with representing specific interests in a school setting, specifically those of the school, and the school is a going concern, right? They should be thinking about it kind of in a long-term horizon. I think the in the school community, it works out so nicely because the name of the board of directors often is trustees, and that says it better than anything. They really do hold the school in trust for the community. I think a lot of times people tend to think about ethics in a way that makes them feel like they're being judged or they've done something wrong. And so I think it's really nice to uh, reset it and have people remember its positive frame and that it's really there to encourage all of us to do and be our best. You're right that people kind of get into this black and white place, you know, when they think about ethics, like, oh, this is right, or this is wrong, or I always have to take, you know, this moral high ground. But but your idea of, of allowing people to flourish in the organization, I think really speaks to the idea of this this duty of care, right? That, that a trustee, like you said, is entrusted with ensuring that everybody in the organization from, from the students to the teachers to the parents have a, have a really great experience. That's right. But in addition to that duty of care, they also have a duty of loyalty. And that really gets down Mm -hmm. to sort of trying to ferret out any conflicts of interest. And I think one of the biggest ethical challenges for many independent schools is that their trustees are often current parents. And so that means that right out of the gate, they're a bit conflicted. Their impartiality is somewhat compromised. So to combat that reality when they're in the boardroom, trustees have to keep reminding themselves that they're there for the school. 
I know a lot of independent schools, you know, struggle with putting together a board and try and do it in a way so that it's not completely filled with current parents. A best practice I've seen are those schools that are able to get parents of, you know, recent graduates, for example. So they were just recently in the school environment, but they're no longer they're no longer in it. Yeah, no, that that's something that that, you know, we we talk about a lot. At NAIS, because you're right, it, it is so hard um, for parents to to put aside their their parent hat and look at you know what's best for the school five, ten, fifteen years down the road versus you know what's happening with my child today. You know what what is their what is their school experience like in this moment versus in the future. I refer to that as playing one's position, being clear about, you know, sort of what's the role I'm fulfilling and being relentless about that. But that's actually just one practice of ethical leadership. Um, there are other things that trustees can do to c- encourage ethical leadership in a school environment. In addition to being good role models themselves, they sh- they also have a role in creating community in helping the head of school and the school leadership to do that and to encourage ethical conduct, actually talking specifically about expected behavior. In corporate settings, the terminology that gets used a lot for that might be code of conduct. But in a school setting, it's probably grounded in learning outcomes where you're actually talking about what you're trying to achieve for the student population. I know at my children's independent school, the kids there are encouraged to buy four values that they talk about all the time. Be kind, be curious, Mm -hmm. take risks, be your best. And I share those because I think values um, like that that are really embraced by the entire school community can work well for the students, which is the original audience that they're put out for. But they can also work pretty well for the trustees on the board. And when you find that kind of integration where you find a set of values that works well for the students and the teachers and also for the board, then you know you've gone a long way towards creating a healthy ethical culture. There's two other practices that go along with that, the sort of creating community, encouraging ethical conduct, and playing your position. And the last two are sort of this idea of clarifying culture so that when things go wrong, and inevitably they will, that the head of school and the board of trustees partner together to sort of set the record straight and that they're using um, some kind of time-tested mission or set of values that they've been using regularly to do that and sort of use that to get the school community kind of back to their grounding. And the final thing that uh, boards do, again, in partnership with the head of school and school leadership is they think about the the incentives and what they're motivating people in the school to do. And they think about whether those are aligned with the values and the mission and the the learning outcomes of the school and try and tweak them whenever they see that they're not. That's great. And, and, you know, we talk a lot about that, this idea of of alignment and how decision making needs to be aligned to, you know, to the vision and the mission and the values of the school. And, you know, even with goal setting and strategic planning and so forth. And so I, I really like that ethical framework that sort of holds all that together. So when faced with ethical challenges, you know, how should trustees approach them to seek a resolution? Well, the primary technology, if you will, that we recommend here Mm -hmm. at the Markle Center is a framework that we've used um, for nearly 30 years. And it tries to take the major modes of moral reasoning over the ages. And when I say over the ages, I mean, you know, back to the time of the Greek philosophers through um, Kant and then up to modern day uh, people who are thinking about ethics and 
and boil them down into five buckets, for lack of a better way of describing it. They're kind of paradigms that people can use to think about, is this right? And is this helping uh, people to flourish? So the first uh, frame is the utilitarian frame. Many people are very familiar with this, and a lot of people, are. this may be the only ethical frame they're familiar with. They might think of it as kind of a cost-benefit analysis because it's traditionally mm-hmm. asking people to look at you know, what are we what are we going to do that's going to do uh, either the least harm or create the greatest benefit for the largest number of people? The second sort of lens that we encourage people to use is uh, one of human rights, and that's to consider the individual rights that any person has at stake in the moment. You know, we all as people have a right to be treated with dignity and respect just because we are people and a right to not be used as a means to an end. So often you want to be thinking about students' rights and privacy, parents' rights, and the real challenges, of course, come up when you have individuals in school communities and they each have rights, but those rights might be in conflict with one another. The third lens we use is one of justice, which is just, is it fair? And are we treating people equally? Uh, We ask, uh, encourage trustees to consider the common good, what's good for the entire school community, not just one part of it. And then this is so consistent and so important in a school setting. The virtues approach is really all those things that we think about when we're asking ourselves, you know, can I be the best version of myself? What's allowing me to be the person I want to be? And so those are the kinds of things that we suggest that boards think about when they're faced with an ethical dilemma. And so I, I can see how easy it would be to kind of live in that that first lens, the, the utilitarian lens, I think is is how you described it. Just kind of, you know, doing that that checks and balances approach versus like really going through, you know, looking at, at through these different perspectives at the same problem and seeing, you know, maybe uncovering some issues that, that maybe they hadn't thought about before through those different lenses that you described. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge boards face really, Amory, is time. You know, to to really Mm -hmm. slow down and actually allow for enough discussion to go through not only those five, but they may have actually decided, okay, that's a great starting point, but we want to put some additional questions in that we're always going to consider. And they may be questions that kind of take the school's mission or the school's value statement and and use those as additional questions. And they kind of make their own rubric that way, to use a school term, for, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about what's right in our school? What, What do we consider ethical behavior? So not just the ways that it's thought about universally um, through these five lenses, but also the way that we think about it right here in our school. Right, right. And I think that goes back to that idea of the values that we have as a school, right? So, you know, how the board behaves should mirror the values that the school says. So you mentioned earlier about sort of slowing down and really examining problems more carefully, but are there any other ways that the head of school and the board chair could support a culture of ethical behavior on the board? Yeah, there's plenty, of course. I I mean, I think the most important thing that the head of school and the um, chair need to have is a genuine partnership. And once they have that and people can see that it's built out of mutual respect and support, it goes a long way towards influencing the culture of the board and the nature of the conversations that it's going to have. It doesn't mean necessarily, you know, spending a lot of time in meetings 
worrying about what what's the boards to do and what's the school leadership teams to do. That's always a little bit of a flag for me when I see boards start to to kind of uh, over rely, if you will, on those distinctions, because the trustee's role is really a holistic one. And it, and as I said, in a nonprofit setting, it has responsibilities to the broader community, not just the school. So it's nice when the board chair and the head of school can identify and use some tools that they both feel really comfortable with to reinforce the roles. The one I like to suggest is um, some kind of regular culture assessment where you're actually going out periodically and asking the school and its various stakeholders uh, about what it thinks about the culture of the school. And and that, that may be one way that you develop that, that customized framework for, for ethical decision making that I was talking about. And I think heads of school need to trust their trustees. You know, it sounds it sounds a little obvious when you say it like that. But, um, I mean, there's sometimes a tendency for them to, you know, hang on to the steering wheel a bit tight. And actually, if they can, if they can have some confidence in the people that they've asked to join them as leaders on the board and be sure that board committee chairs are actually designing and leading their own meetings and not just, you know, parroting the talking points given to them, then I think they're going to have a much better exchange of ideas in those committees and get a whole lot more out of them. If you don't have a climate of mutual trust, our research suggests that it makes it harder for ethical decisions to actually occur. So you want to do everything you can to to contribute to that. And I think sort of distributing the decision-making, if you will, really engaging the board fully in their work uh, is one way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, I, and I like the way you called out the importance of of the committee work and the folks who are who are leading those committees to to have, you know, the the autonomy and the trust of the of the head of school to know that you know, and the board chair obviously that 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 work is going to get done in in a way that that benefits everyone. Usually, have trustees who are so dedicated because they often do have some real deep connection to the school. So yeah, mm-hmm. giving them that chance to actually kind of bring it, if you will, at the committee level is a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and people need to feel empowered, right? You know, it makes the work of being on the board worthwhile. And and I get that loud and clear, you know, when I talk to trustees and I ask them, you know, why do you serve? The number one reason is, you know, I want to give back to the school that's given so much, you know, to my family or, you know, I was invited on because, you know, I have a skill set and I really want to contribute to my community. And so, yeah, you know, letting folks have the bandwidth to be able to do that work in a meaningful way is, is critical. Boards often struggle in crisis situations because they don't have experience discussing topics that make them uncomfortable. And I talk to boards a lot about this, about, you know, how conflict isn't a bad thing, that it's okay to have conflict on the board and have difficult conversations. So how would you suggest boards practice or prepare for ethical decision-making in times of, of high stress? Well, you know, school boards are not alone in this dilemma. Nonprofit boards traditionally are challenged around this idea of dissent in the boardroom. And that's because people who end up on nonprofit and particularly on school boards, they have overlapping networks, right? Either socially or professionally or they're, or they're parenting together or their neighbors. And those things can really make it kind of challenging. But the very nature of governance, I always like to quote governance guru Dick Chait, who says, uh, nonprofit governance, or really all governance, it 
is at its heart, it's generative dialogue. In other words, we all come into this room and we talk about something and we come out with an outcome that would have been better than if either just the school leadership or any individual trustee had tried to tackle the issue on their own. And so you really want to create the space for that kind of dialogue and that exchange to happen. And that means everybody's not just going to kind of like all nod and agree all the time. In a previous life, I was the CEO of a nonprofit organization that provided leadership development for CEOs here in Silicon Valley. And we actually invested a fair amount of time trying to teach them how to have this kind of generative dialogue. And I think there's some correlation or some some analogies between a room full of CEOs trying to do it and what happens with trustees in a boardroom. Because they need to, you know, first there's that time issue again. You need to recognize that you've got to create the space for discussion to happen. And that, in my opinion, that's really comes down to the skill of the board chair at being sure to both, you know, think about what an art it is, right? I got to keep this agenda moving, but also when we hit something that clearly needs more engagement, I have to somehow be able to make that call and let everybody else in the room know, hey, we're going to we're going to take a little more time here and we're going to go a little bit deeper because we need to. The model that we worked with was from a scholar from MIT, a guy named Bill Isaacs, who's written a great book for people that are interested in this called Dialogue, the Art of Thinking Together. And in it, he really talks about the importance of teaching people to realize you know, there's both a time for advocacy, for saying this is what I think we should do, and inquiry, you know, finding out from other people what should happen, and being able to recognize when conversations get stuck, how to unstick them, if you will, how to give the, the conversation what it needs. And sometimes what it needs is disagreement. So I think it's a model that when a board chair and a head of school together get comfortable with it, and they practice it and on low stakes topics, on things that maybe aren't that important, then when something really significant comes along, it's a more sensitive topic or it's high profile in the community, then they've sort of built the muscle, if you will, to have that kind of dialogue in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And I liked how you emphasize the need for, for practice in low stakes. It's what we do with our students, right? I mean, we don't just, you know, give them a, a high stakes test and say, good luck. That makes total sense to me in the boardroom that folks, you know, if if you already have a culture of niceness and people don't really want to disagree with one another, give them an opportunity to practice, like you said, flexing those muscles. And adults even more than young people, they learn by doing. So they need that opportunity to do it, reflect upon it, and then apply what they've learned from it again. So yeah, by all means, practice on something that's, you know, not a critical issue and really try and understand how you can get people to bring forward different points of view so that when you really need that, it's there for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to your your previous point about the need for trust, right? Because people aren't going to, to vocalize a dissenting opinion if they don't feel safe in, in that environment. Absolutely. So what are some common ethical challenges an independent school trustee might face? The most common one has got to be that the trustee feels a complaint or a comment from a current parent about something that that parent feels the board should either do or should know about. And I just, it seems like this one comes up all the time, especially if the trustees 
are frequently in the school community. The most seasoned trustees I've seen are the ones who can very lightly observe that, you know, well, let's, you know, and thank the person for their input or their question or their comment, but also signal that whatever's being brought to their attention may not really be the domain of the board, but of school leadership. Or if it is the domain of the board, of course, no one trustee is out there deciding or speaking for the board on their own, right? That's actually the very nature of what goes on in governance is that the decisions are made collaboratively and by a group. And so it's just really having the skill in that moment and maybe even some practice phrases to be able to kind of redirect the conversation and be able to say kindly, that's really not in your domain. The other thing that's true is that I think school trustees are often in positions where the the most important thing for them to do is nothing, (laughs) is to simply sit and listen or nod. Um, And even if a lot of parents are in a, you know, in a discussion where they're either, you know, complaining about a certain policy or a certain administrator, you know, this is when silence is really golden. And I know that's kind of goes against human nature when people feel like they have a position of responsibility. You know, they often feel like they should be doing something to, to take it, to show others that they take it. But I think often school boards should just be listening and thinking, and then when they're together, bringing whatever information and insights they have to bear so that they can, they can draw on their collective wisdom to do what's right for the school. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is such a fine balance that, that trustees need to walk. And, and like you said, that sort of like smiling and listening and yet not committing <laughs> to, to any action necessarily, because as you said, you know, an individual trustee doesn't speak for the entire board. And, and most oftentimes when, when parents are, are sharing concerns or I have a good friend who says that, that parents sometimes care very loudly, um, that, that those get redirected back to to the school administration or to the head of school. Even if they are the board's topic, that the board is given the opportunity to take them up collectively. So even if even if you have to rely on the, you know, right. well, thank you so much for your input. Of course, you understand that I'm but one board member, right? I can only, all I can do at this point is take in your, your perspective. I can't really do anything with it until we're together as a full board. Right, right. No, that that's and that's great advice. And and I love that, that you've provided some language that trustees can use in a really practical way. So so thank you for that. And and thank you again just for your time today. This has been such an important conversation and I know that the insights that you've shared with us are going to be so helpful to our members. Well thank you again for inviting me to participate. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.